Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we're very excited to welcome back to the podcast today, Asla Bali. Asla is a specialist in international law, and she is a professor of law at Yale Law School. And she focuses in particular, and this is relevant for today, uh, human rights law and the law of the international security order. So Asla, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so I guess the first thing that I will ask is a more general question, which is what is the state of international law after 20 plus years of the war on terror, after the United States doing various invasions, after Russia invaded Ukraine? Maybe you could just give us a general sense before we go into the ICJ ruling. Yeah, uh, I mean, the state of international law is certainly in a kind of crisis for a set of reasons, some of which you alluded to. So first, over the last quarter century or so, the United States has itself taken measures that have led to an unraveling of an order of its own design, including violating the prohibition on the use of force, including introducing new exceptions whereby powerful states can use their own judgment around humanitarian crises to further weaken whatever prohibitions existed. So there have been so many instances of non-defensive uses of force is how we would call it in international law. But, you know, your listeners may be more familiar with words like aggression, invasion, occupation, that at this point, it's becoming difficult to claim that there's a norm left to vindicate around collective security. Having said that, the other thing that has put pressure on the international legal order is that uh, a quarter century ago, we lived in a universe of unipolarity. We lived in a post-Cold War order where there were a lot of sort of sanctimonious truths mouthed about the nature of international law. But in fact, and here I kind of um, agree with some realists that I would otherwise not be on the same page with, there was a way that international law was being presented as symbiotic with American interests, essentially, and also sort of mutually co-constitutive. So what the United States did was allegedly provide order and stability. It was the backer of a so-called rules-based order, et cetera. A quarter century later, not only has the United States itself taken actions that have undermined the fabric of that so-called order, such as it was, but also it no longer stands alone. So when the United States sets precedents around the use of force or weakening uh, the prohibition on the use of force, when it claims that humanitarian reasons are good reasons to invade other countries and so forth, there may be many other takers of those precedents, including Russia, which has sought to invoke precedents from Kosovo to Libya in defense of some of its positions in Ukraine, to China, to other actors in the international system that also now feel unconstrained and offering, let's say, novel interpretations of how best to understand international law. Now, there are two ways to think about this. One way to think about it would be, it is in fact true that the international legal order is dependent upon American power and now we're in a crisis. I think a better reading might be that the United States stood in some tension with the way in which the international legal rules were conceived in the post-World War II period. And unipolarity essentially meant that the United States exempted itself from a set of rules that it purported to apply to others. And today we're back in a multipolar world in which there's a possibility of international law actually having some constraining effect going forward, in part because all actors are now aware of the potential precedent that might be used by their adversaries or competitors, and we may be back in a universe in which smaller and middle-sized powers can wield international law in interesting ways, first to deprive hegemonic actors of legitimacy in the sort of course of action that they're choosing to pursue, and second, in trying to pursue a shield 
to defend themselves against various kinds of intervention. And part of this leads us to the ICJ case, because what we see South Africa doing is actually trying to wield the moral legitimacy of international law and international institutions to constrain what has other be- otherwise been geopolitically an unconstrainable set of uh, crimes being committed in Gaza that most of the world is horrified by, but which are being um, you know, shielded from meaningful scrutiny as a consequence of powerful Western support. So I think uh, a basic question that it would be worth asking is what exactly was the charge? And maybe you could talk about what does genocide mean in the context of international law? Because that is that is obviously a word that has specific legal uh, definitions, ramifications, but is also used very much in a common sense way. So if you could specify what the actual charge was, and then we could go from there. Yeah. So first to just say a word about genocide and international law, uh, you know, the international legal order that we have is a post-World War II international legal order. And it has a set of really core normative foundations. One of them is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, which is the first time that human rights was introduced in international law. The United Nations Charter, which sets forth the collective security order, prohibition on the use of force, and critically, the Genocide Convention. I mean, these, and the fourth would be the Nuremberg Charter. These four instruments, which were put in place between 1945 and 1948, basically constitute the core of the normative heart of international law, if you want. And the Genocide Convention is especially important because it emerges out of the experience of the Holocaust. And of course, is deeply tied as a result also to the creation of the State of Israel, to the partition plan overseen by the United Nations, et cetera. But it's a reckoning with the idea that there can be crimes committed against civilian populations that are totally independent of any war-related aid that might be simply for the purpose of the destruction of that civilian population with the intent to bring about that destruction. So the Genocide Convention essentially takes a set of ideas around crimes against humanity that were presented in the Nuremberg Charter and identifies as the apex crime, the crime of intentionally setting out, whether in wartime or in peacetime, to destroy a people in whole or in part by taking a set of prohibited actions that are laid out in the convention, which include things like um, killing, acts of killing, acts of um, uh, causing serious bodily and mental harm, causing mass displacement, deprivation of the basic um, necessities required for the preservation of life, causing the destruction of life, and so forth. So these are the contents of the Genocide Convention. And the charge that South Africa brought uh, is that Israel is committing eight acts that they enumerated in their um, written presentation, but also in the oral hearing to great effect, that are violations of that core prohibition to engage in specific acts with the intent to bring about the destruction in whole or in part of a people, and in this case, the Palestinian people of Gaza. Asla, maybe this is another basic question, but maybe uh, you could talk a little bit about the ruling on Friday and, and sort of how the ICJ works and what this ruling was in a technical sense, because I've seen some confusion about this. I've also seen a lot of people cynically, uh, you know, wielding this preliminary ruling to say things like, well, the court didn't find that Israel's committing genocide, when in fact that wasn't the question that was on the table on Friday. So maybe you could talk just a little bit about what what went into Friday's ruling and what it what it was in the the kind of strict sense. Yeah. So South Africa has alleged that Israel is committing acts of genocide. And because that is such an absolutely um, terrifying prospect in international law. And as I've said, it's a, it would be a violation of really an apex norm. 
uh, both in terms of treaty law and Ms. Kogan's norms. Uh, it's necessary, given the urgency of the circumstances and the charges, for the court to also determine whether or not provisional measures, some kind of temporary injunction or restraining order is necessary to prevent those acts from continuing while the court is seized of the matter and adjudicating whether or not the charges are correct. So what the hearing was in January and what the decision was um, on Friday is related to those provisional measures. So it's not a question of a determination on the merits, whether in fact um, South Africa has satisfactorily made out the case that Israel is committing genocide. Rather, the determination that's necessary to issue this kind of injunctive relief is to determine whether or not a plausible case was presented that uh, the commission of acts of genocide might be taking place, also incitement to genocide might be taking place, and that Israel may be failing to prevent or prohibit its military from engaging in these acts and engaging in these forms of incitement. So that was what was at stake, whether or not a plausible case had been made. And if so, what kinds of measures were necessary to order in order to address the plausibility of those charges and pre- prevent irreparable harm from taking place during the time that the court is seized of the matter? So the court is going to take years maybe two years, maybe three years, maybe more, to come to its final decision on the merits. And in the meantime, of course, if indeed acts of genocide are being committed, it could be that the problem would be mooted in that period because you would complete um, that project. And so, of course, it was necessary, given the urgency of the claims, to consider whether injunctive relief was necessary. That's what the court did, and the court determined that it was indeed necessary. That leads us into the substance of the ruling. Can you uh, take people through what the court ordered and also in the case of the the ceasefire that the South Africans were looking for, what it did not order. Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, the reason that South Africa felt the need to bring this case is likely because the UN Security Council had been disabled as a result of the US veto itself from ordering a ceasefire. So as a backdrop to this whole international law setting, it's worth noting that the vast majority of states in the international system, over 150, had already voted in the UN General Assembly that a ceasefire was urgently needed. The Security Council had blocked the path of imposing enforceable measures requiring a ceasefire because the U.S. vetoed that um, resolution repeatedly. And as a consequence, South Africa proceeded with this case, saying that they had to find a different international law mechanism by which to get uh, a, a firm and binding decision that Israel had to desist in these acts. So that's the backdrop, and it's the urgency of the situation. The most important legal issue at stake was whether or not the claim that South Africa made was plausible, whether a majority of judges, including the U.S. judge, uh, in fact, an ad hoc judge appointed by Israel, um, whether a majority of these 17 judges would find that it was plausible that one could characterize the events taking place in Gaza as acts that amount to genocide, incitement of genocide, and failure to prevent genocide. And the court found that that is plausible. That's the most important thing to know. And it's an incredible uh, statement. It has lots of significance that we should talk about at great length. But it was necessary for them to come to that determination to order anything. Because if they had not found it plausible, there would have been no measures. So then what did they actually order, having come to that determination? Interestingly, and symbolically, very significantly, it was the American presiding judge that read out the ruling that Israel must ensure that its military forces do not commit acts of genocide. I mean, the very fact that an international court is sitting in, you know, the plenary to have to say this um, obligation out loud to the state of Israel is symbolically incredibly important. But the first of the measures was all measures uh, had to be taken. Israel is to take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts constituting 
the physical elements of genocide. And then in reading this aloud, Joan Donahue specified that is killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting conditions of life on the group, calculated to bring about its physical destruction and imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. So the all measures necessary to prevent the commission of these acts has been ordered on Israel. It was also ordered to ensure to, that its military not commit any such acts, that it prevent and punish direct and public incitement to commit genocide. I'm going to just pause on this for a second to let your audience understand, again, the magnitude of what was said here. Uh, in reading aloud the prevent and punish incitement order, Joan Donahue said Israel should prevent and punish direct and public incitement to commit genocide, specifically drawing attention to statements by Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, which she read aloud again, including his speech to IDF troops on the Gaza border saying, I have released all restraints. Also directly quoting the Israeli president and then directly quoting the Minister of Energy, Israel Katz, that, who said all the civilian population in Gaza is ordered to leave immediately. We will win. They will not receive a drop of water or a single battery until they leave the world. These things were read aloud by the American judge presiding on the International Court of Justice. And this particular measure received an affirmative vote from the Israeli ad hoc judge as well, as did the next one, which is that Israel must enable the provision of humanitarian assistance. The court also required effective measures to prevent uh, destruction and ensure preservation of all evidence relating to the charges from South Africa. And finally, it required Israel to report back to the court on all measures it had taken within one month of the order, meaning, and that's a very short timeline. And so that's a requirement. And it tells us that the ICJ is going to continue to expect to hear from the Israeli uh, government on the measures it's taking to comply with what are binding orders. So these are very extensive. And I would underscore that it is very hard in practice to give effect to these measures without a ceasefire. So although it's true that the court did not order a ceasefire, it's very difficult to know how they're going to preclude the commission of the killing of individuals, the imposition of physical and mental harm, the creation of conditions that could lead to the destruction of the people, et cetera, in circumstances where Gaza is on the brink of famine, starvation conditions are widespread, epidemic diseases are rampant, including an incredible surge in hepatitis A. There is widespread diarrhea amongst children, soaring infant mortality under these conditions, how is it possible to actually give effect to these orders without um, doing something that amounts to a ceasefire, which may explain in part why notwithstanding geopolitical conditions that had made a ceasefire very difficult until very recently, it looks like negotiations for a ceasefire have suddenly gained dramatic momentum. So I wonder, and and this is you know I'm not a lawyer, and uh, I, I do want to talk about the the significance of uh, this ruling because I think that's important. But without the the sort of very strict order for a ceasefire, is there not enough subjectivity built into this ruling that the Israeli government could plausibly say, "Oh, look, we let you know five more trucks in yesterday," or we. Uh, we, I mean, they've already talked about we're mo we're stepping down in parts of Gaza, and uh, you know we're transitioning to new phases, and uh, you know it's impossible to know. It doesn't really seem like it from the outside, but is there not enough kind of wiggle room built into this that they could make that argument? So two things. The first thing is these measures are binding, but there's no world police, right? So no matter what measure the court issued, it would be difficult to enforce. 
and there would be room, interpretive room, right? And it's true, of course, that the Israelis are able and, and are very likely to say, you know, we can comply with these measures. First of all, I mean, there have been already accounts provi- provided by some Israeli lawyers that say, we're doing all the things that have been required under this order. And so it actually doesn't require us to do anything. We were already under an obligation not to commit acts of genocide. We've never committed acts of genocide. We were already facilitating humanitarian assistance. That was effectively the Israeli team's presentation at the oral hearing. One part of this decision is to say, look, this court, by very wide majorities, 15 to 2, uh, with the Israeli judge counting, or 16 to 1, where even the Israeli judge joined the majority, has found in favor of these measures, all of which repudiate the Israeli claim that they're already doing these things, right? The Israelis presented a very strong argument to that effect, and the court still felt it necessary to issue these measures. So to begin with the notion that these measures simply say to Israel, do the things that you already purport to do, which is abide by international legal obligations, that probably won't fly now. But what does it mean to say it won't fly? It means that if Israel were to come back four weeks from now to the court and say, we allowed in five additional trucks and there was a uh, you know, mild ramp down, but actually starvation conditions are still in effect, diseases are growing, humanitarian aid is still reported to be a trickle, et cetera the court is unlikely to find that that constitutes compliance. Now, is that, you know, of course, we're talking about international law at the end of the day. What gives international law its real enforcement power is the fact that all other states are required to also comply with binding measures. And so in this circumstance, right, what the court has made clear is that while the order itself is binding on Israel alone, the requirements to prevent and not be complicit in the commission of genocidal acts attached to all parties to the Genocide Convention. And so where the rubber is going to meet the road with respect to these orders is the degree to which it engenders a shift that we may not be able to see as a matter of public record in the conversations that are happening between the United States and Israel, between other Western sponsors in Israel, about the kind of license they're prepared to provide, the levels of immunity they're going to continue to afford, and what kind of operation Israel can now, for the next four weeks and well beyond that, uh, plan to undertake in Gaza uh, while still enjoying that kind of partnership, let's say, from Western states, which are, again, under their own positive affirmative obligations not to be complicit and also actively to prevent. And the court has now said there's a plausible case that this is happening. And so that's where it cashes out. Uh, Of course, Israel can offer all kinds of interpretations and indeed will undoubtedly do so. This is law. Law is indeterminate, even if the orders had been much more specific, which I would have preferred. Right. That's definitely I mean, there's a way in which the interpretive can got kicked down the road by offering a framing that invites that kind of the kind of lawyering that you've described. But at the end of the day, whatever the content of the measures, Israel is going to come back with an, uh, you know, a colorable, let's say, legal argument. Thank you for listening to American Prestige. For the rest of the episode, please visit our website, AmericanPrestigePod.com or AmericanPrestige.substack.com. And please consider subscribing as a founding member. If you do, you'll receive a year-long digital subscription to The Nation magazine. Thanks. Thanks.